1: wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere.
1: ACAST.com This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is
0: Grand
3: Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylands, the City Metric podcast. I'm John.
1: And
4: I'm Stephanie. And this week we're talking about cities and gender. You don't
5: think of the design of cities as something automatically that's going to discriminate against women.
6: This new, well educated, English speaking community has taken over the city.
7: Wow, it's so much more comfortable to walk in boots. <laughs>
3: So, not a lot of people realise this about me. I kept it a bit quiet, but I am, in fact, a man. Um, and yeah, that makes me different from, from you, Stephanie, because you're, you're, you're not a man. In fact, I think it's fair to say that um, you're, you are, in fact, a woman. So, how's that working out for you?
4: It's hit and miss, to be honest, John, because, um, you know, obviously there's some some good things about being a woman. I'm allowed to cry in public and read a McBride, but there are bad things, like living in a patriarchy... And that extends into cities. We don't currently have a kind of zoning charge for sexism, although Sadiq, you know, get on it.
3: Cities are, are very much part of the, the patriarchy, are they? We haven't got, like, a one that... The, the, the patriarchy isn't a geographical phenomenon. It's,
4: no, um, much like every other part of the world, the city is, is a patriarchal space.
3: OK, so how... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to edit the... F- <laughs> I think you should I, include
4: all the laughing. Yeah,
3: so OK, how... How does living in the patriarchy manifest itself in the urban world? Kind of give us a a typical morning's commute, maybe.
4: Oh, how long have we got? So I live in Whitechapel in East London, which is...
3: Full of hipsters.
4: Full of hipsters. Well, not my little bit's actually full of kind of... um, Bengali grandmothers which is really nice we have um, a lot of property that's been owned by Bengali families for generations so the developers are baying at the door but haven't yet been able to buy most of it
3: so what you're saying is the bit of East London you live in is pretty obscure and I wouldn't have heard of it
4: well I mean it's Whitechapel it's okay. you know our international listeners might know it for the Jack the Ripper murders that tends to be what people have heard of in Whitechapel but we've also got you know bagels and other good things so as I leave my front door actually no, it starts before that Because if you're a woman living in the city, one of the first things you have to consider is what to wear for the day. I hear men also get dressed, but it has a very specific import for women, in that what you wear and how you present yourself is always a bit of a negotiation, and whether or not you do get harassed more or less, depending on what you're wearing, I've never been able to tell precisely, but it's still a consideration. So you get dressed, you leave the house, sometimes you get catcalled in the mornings, I think it should be illegal to catcall people before 9am because i'm just too grumpy to deal with it, um, <laughs> it
3: there's a danger that if you do that and it's just going to encourage people it's like right, 905 here we begin go the cat calls.
4: Yeah. <laughs> then you go to the tube we earn 77 percent of a man's income on average so you pay for your tube fare out of your diminished salary i'm really banging on here but um <laughs> And then you get on the tube, not frequently, but definitely occasionally enough that it is part of the lived experience of being in a city. Somebody will either try and talk to you on the tube, which maybe should also be outlawed for everyone, perhaps. I know you don't like people talking to you on the tube.
3: Or or anywhere else, ideally.
4: Um, yeah, um, sometimes... You know, I, I I know a lot of women who live in London who have been groped on the tube or various other kind of horrible things have happened to them, mostly at the hands of male commuters. To what, to... <laughs> it's just a litany of misery. I promise my mornings are quite cheerful.
3: <laughs> to what extent do you think being in an urban environment kind of exacerbates this stuff like do you think there is something specific about cities that makes it more likely or do you think it's just kind of the density of incident and experience
4: i think it is yeah i think there's the density of incident and experience and that you are at very close quarters with a lot of people which means you have interactions with a lot more people but i also think the city provides certain freedoms for women which might not be so simple elsewhere. So it is relatively easy for me to get home at night. I'm very lucky in, in where I live, in that there are busy transport routes back to my house. And definitely, when I lived in the countryside, that was more of a concern. I'd have to walk with my keys in my hand. So it works. It works both ways, I think.
3: I mean, that's so often the case with with stuff about how how cities function. They are sort of a heightened version of what you get everywhere else, really. See, I really don't have to think about most of this stuff. It's not that nobody ever talks to me on public transport, but, you know, it's a, it's a rarity and it's also it's not it's not that threatening when, when they do because I'm kind of a big lad. I do think about what I wear because I'm pretentious, but, but it, it doesn't actually sort of make a difference with how people engage with me particularly. Um, although I have occasionally been on television wearing some terribly loud shirts which I should really sort of think about. <laughs> um, yeah, first of all I, I hope
4: common. women kind of mock you when you do this yeah I, I have confidence in them.
3: <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm reasonably well I mean like mo- most of our desk upstairs are women and, and I'm married so I'm pretty well mocked don't worry about <laughs> that like, there's, there's no shortage of women in my life to mock me. Um, but the it, big- it
4: is the new statesman offices may maybe one of the few places which are a patriarchy free zone at least the web desk because i feel like we've just stacked the gender divide so in favor of women
3: yeah i'm the only white man on the new statesman web disk and have been for well over a year at this point so which is great i get to be the sort of sink for everyone's rage against patriarchy which is you know which that's that's my cross to bear it's not really making up for you know ten thousand years of gender oppression well Um, you know
4: you go one step at a time
3: yeah (laughs) but but i think the, the thing that I'm most struck by about the difference between my experience and, and and yours is the street harassment thing, which is now sort of spilled over into the social media harassment thing. I can remember being with my then girlfriend like 15 years ago when she kind of got yelled at by some guys in the street, and I just thought that's it's a bit weird. That's not often. To- on this bugger off and it was years later it was the point when twitter was a thing and suddenly you kind of have this window into everyone else's world that like i sort of realized this is just a standard part of of a woman's experience most days and i had no idea this was happening i remember talking about this with my friend tom and he was the same it's like who are these men who are doing this who thinks this but it's clearly you know it's clearly a lot of them
4: it's a lot of them in, in in my experience often the same men who are on twitter going who does this are
3: the
1: yeah, men who do i mean it. probably I can,
4: yeah, we 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 um, every, okay. every woman could name names if she had to okay, <laughs>
3: okay. I, I i i i have i have been known to to mansplain stuff that is a thing i do <laughs> let's not let's not delude ourselves there i but i'm reasonably certain i've never randomly shouted at a woman in the street
4: Unless she was kind of talking about the green belt, and
3: well, she was asking for it. <laughs> I know, that's, that's probably shouldn't joke about that. Um.
4: <laughs> this idea of catcalling is, a, is an interesting thing because, um, as in so many other situations, you know, women in cities are looked at and yet also weirdly invisible, in that you feel yourself watched and you feel the, the weight of the male gaze. But your experiences aren't really testified to until you have a a space like Twitter or until you start, you know, walking around with a boyfriend who then notices it. So Um, so
3: how do we improve the visibility of this, do you reckon? What can we do?
4: Well, one gesture um, that ActionAid tried back in spring was to get 30 mannequins and mark a third of them in red and place them in central London. So the one in three statistic refers to the number of women who reportedly will experience um, violence at the hands of men. And by putting that physically in the landscape, the hope was to raise attention to the fact that you know there is this whole lived experience that a significant minority of women go through that isn't talked about or seen or visible.
3: and we um we had a piece sort of, uh, triggered by this campaign on on City metric, in which a uh, leading feminist journalist wrote about some of the issues women face in in, in the world of city planning.
1: And we're
4: looking up to help.
1: Her. This is a Brooklyn bound A express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a
6: 125th Street bound A express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle.
5: My name is Caroline Criado Perez. I am a writer and I wrote an article for City Metric about designing cities um, with women's needs in mind.
3: Okay, so let's can we talk about the genesis of that article?
5: Safer Cities for Women Day. I'm not sure that that's an actual real day.
3: I mean, none of these things are real days.
5: That's not true. Some of them are... Since I've got interested in the way in which women are sort of excluded from everything pretty much, like all kinds of research, all kinds of design, I've started looking at lots of different official days to mark them in the calendar so that I can look into them when they come up (laughs) (laughs) and to see, aha, this is where the male default is screwing women over
4: in this instance, because that is how fun my life is. So did you run into, were you kind of walking through Marble Arch and you saw these things looming up or was it a picture? No,
5: no, they actually got in touch with me and told me that they were doing it. So it was, yeah, Safer Cities for Women Day and they had 30 mannequins. Uh, A third of them were marked in red to symbolise the one in three women who will experience male violence in her lifetime. And obviously women don't only experience violence in cities, but that just sort of got me thinking about the connection between the discrimination of women and city design. And it's something that I had come across before, the idea that cities are not designed around women, with particular reference to safety. So, for example, there are, you know, if you don't design with women in mind in terms of lighting or in terms of um, having a sense that, that it's not an enclosed space, that pe- women can't be seen easily, women might feel less safe. Whether or not they actually are less safe isn't actually that relevant. It's about restricting women's movement because of the idea that women are always told, you know, don't go down that alleyway, don't go there on your own. So the idea of restricting women's movement in that way. So I wanted to look into it and to see whether there were other ways in which women's movements or women's lives were restricted by something as seemingly innocuous, as seemingly egalitarian as city design. You know, you don't think of the design of cities as something automatically that's going to discriminate against women, particularly if, you know, you're just treating everyone the same. Everyone uses the same roads, everyone uses the same transport. We're all human beings. Why would it be different for women? But
3: it is. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's unpack that a little. What is the actual problem with just sort of going, hey, why can't we just design for like people, ma'am? Why, why do you need to think about women? Like, What's the, what's the difficulty there?
5: <laughs> well, because women are not exactly the same as men. Women are often brought up differently. They have different life experiences. They also have different bodies. And so therefore, inevitably, if you build something around one particular type of human, you often end up discriminating against another kind of human even without meaning to so for example as a general rule men tend to be taller than women so there's this famous human scale by a swiss architect called le courboisier i think who you know set this traditional human scale for for architecture well it turns out that the human scale is based around a six foot human Most women aren't six foot tall. I mean, actually, most men aren't six foot (laughs) tall, but they're more likely to be six foot tall than a woman. So that's just just one example. I mean, that's not going to be huge. That's going to be things like, you know, things are too high for her or things are not, uh, like, I don't know, the loo is hung too high or something (laughs) like that. Um, It's not going to kill you. But there are other examples that are just as sort of seemingly small that actually end up having a much bigger impact on women's lives and one of the ones I thought was most interesting was the snow clearing schedule in a city called Karlskoga in Sweden where they they were looking at various ways in which they ran their city and they wanted to figure out in what way were they, without meaning to, discriminating against women, making life harder for women? They found lots of ways that weren't that surprising. For example, transport. But supposedly, the way the, where the snow clearing schedule came, came up was as a joke, as just a kind of, well, at least snow clearing is gender neutral, and we won't have to worry about that. And unfortunately for them, that got the gender people thinking, <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that actually it is gendered. So they looked at the the, the schedule what was cleared first and they found that they cleared the major road arteries first and they were clearing the pavements last. And actually because men and women um, tend to move around the city differently, so women are more likely to use public transport and more likely to walk and they're more likely to make more complex and shorter journeys throughout the day.
4: It sounds like one of those things where once you think about it, you have that, my mind's opening up listening Mm. to you talk about it now, where if you clear major thoroughfares first, you're also going commuting to work is more important than domestic labour so you you know it immediately sets off all of these big alarm bells exactly so I
5: mean that's I mean that is the reason for which women's types of journeys are different to men's types of journeys but as a sort of repercussion of that once they decided okay let's stop prioritising men let's start prioritising women and cyclists and wheelchair users and all sorts of people who aren't going to be doing this uh, twice daily commute they found that hospital admissions for falls as a result of icy conditions fell dramatically, which wasn't something that they'd been expecting. And it isn't something that you'd automatically expect. And so you sort of think about it and think, well, yeah, actually you are more likely to slip as a person than a car is. And
4: can, on, on the note of public transport, can I ask about buses? Because you mentioned this scheme in, apologies, I'm probably going to mispronounce the... Um, city now, is it Kalmar? In India, I think, where they say they've arranged for buses to make stops between kind of official bus stops if you want to get off somewhere safe. I
5: think this one was. Um, is that also in Sweden? That was also Sweden. Oh, it's Sweden. always Sweden, Sweden doing Sweden <laughs> stuff, isn't are it? really good. Um, <laughs> Vienna is quite good also. So, <laughs> so what
4: is it? so because that, that would revolutionise the lives of people anyway, if you could kind of, if your bus became part cab after a certain hour, I mean, that would be incredible, right? You could.
5: Oh my god, I've just. Realised I had a dream last night about this. This is so tragic. I had a dream that there was a bus (laughs) that actually did that. Um, Although I think it was less for violence against women reasons and more for
4: not carrying. Yeah, yeah, the other other
5: night I had to walk and almost missed the last tube and it was all very stressful. Um,
3: I I did dream an increase in frequency on the London Overground line between Romford and Upminster the other week. That is literally a dream I had. So it's possible I've been doing this job too long.
4: Uh, Right, Right in with your best city metric.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway.
5: But yeah, I mean, that ties into what, what I was saying right at the beginning about it's not necessarily always about actual risk of violence, given that we live in a world in which one in three women will experience violence against women in her lifetime Um, and women are taught that this is it is their responsibility to avoid violence by having areas that don't look seem well lit or expecting women to walk back in you know get off the bus stop and in a place that seems unsafe that is limiting her ability to you know move around the city to have a social life to engage in all the sorts of things that you kind of imagine would be a normal way of, of experiencing a city, a normal way of living a city, in a city. And that's, you know, that's as important as whether or not violence actually is increasing. So for example, when councils across the UK started off switching off lights um, as a result of cost-saving exercises, there was a lot of research into whether or not it actually did increase violence. And it looks like violence hasn't actually increased but what has increased is women are feeling unsafe as they walk down the street and therefore you know that is curtailing their ability to move around mm-hmm. and that's a really important part of women's lives the fear that we're expected to 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 move around
4: with you also wonder as well if, if people are reporting that you know it is changing how they experience the city well maybe violence hasn't increased because people have stopped doing those journeys and, yeah, and, and therefore people aren't out in public space, and that's a yeah. sad kind of. Fine, your statistics look the same, but yeah, at, at the cost of kind of people's that's freedom. That's really,
5: that's really interesting, and I hadn't actually thought of that. And um, it's de- yeah, it's definitely it's something horrible, worth looking isn't into. It? Yeah.
3: <laughs> to what extent? Do we think the problem here is that the kind of people who who want to spend their careers doing things like city planning and playing with transport maps and so on—that's thats has got the, the map impulse—is a very male thing. It's like, <laughs> is it? It, it fits. Like, I think it fits with a certain type of male obsessiveness. I think, like, generally speaking, like there are more, there are more men listening to this podcast than women because just the more men are that kind of nerd it's not it's not it's not universal but it is It is a bit gendered and I just wondered if that's feeding into like men are therefore more likely to be doing the jobs where they make these decisions
5: I'm sure that that's that's part of it I just was struck by the 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 idea that maps are necessarily gendered because doesn't everyone love old maps and weird maps and funny maps they're always really popular aren't they
3: yeah I mean but I think it's I don't know, maybe I'm just reading across from me, me and Barbara Speed, where like, I was the one who got really excited about maps and she kind of roll her eyes slightly and be like, oh, John's at it again. Love
4: maps. Is that, yeah. I really love
3: maps. It's that gendered. <laughs> I had, there are actually, there has actually been research on this, I think. Like, ma- men are more likely to get really weirdly into maps. Or, or have this, or the, it's, it's the train spotting impulse, basically.
4: Yeah. <laughs> but there it are is. more men kind of working in this field. No, I there guess are. that's that, a point that absolutely. kind of going towards.
5: You know, in, I mean, I... I, uh, I I don't dispute your point. I just wondered specifically about the maps, and I'd be—and that wasn't like a loaded question. I genuinely would be interested to know.
3: hear more from Caroline later starting with a bit where she actually answers the question I just asked her you know in typical male fashion I'm just kind of interrupting at this point to talk about something else but that interview was was a few weeks ago now and ever since then she's been sending me links to things suggesting that women are also interested in maps just you know demonstrating that perhaps I'm a little bit wrong about that one for example, she, uh, Caroline sent me a, a link to a, a, a BBC news story about a very fashionable silk dress made up from the design of a World War II escape map. Oh, it's is, like
4: a dog walking on its hind legs hearing you say fashionable silk dress. I know, it's a
3: bloody dress. What do you want me to say? It's like, you know, it's
4: so it's made up of World War D maps. Sorry, tell yeah, us about the got, dress.
3: It's got, it's got a map on it. It's a dress with a map on it. What more do you want?
4: It's true. But, that, is a good way, that is a good gateway drug to get women into maps because if you put it on a dress... They might become interested.
3: Yeah, maybe a handbag. That could be good. Yeah, or a
4: lip... Can you get a map on lip? it's too small?
3: I don't know. Lipstick map? Probably not the whole tube. But yeah, as you could probably tell, Caroline was slightly cynical about my belief that map obsession was a peculiarly male form of of nerdery. So I've been sort of doing a bit of Googling to check on the state of the research. One thing that does actually... There does seem to be some truth to is that men do have better spatial awareness than women there's reasonably sort of clear research to back that up what's not clear though is whether that's kind of genetic or learned kind or yeah, of yeah whether it's the way we're socialized
4: i would love to see the research on how you figure out whether it's natural or learned like you could put babies in a maze
3: yeah that would be amazing <laughs> hey I
4: mean, amazing
3: I'm doing that thing you kept doing the other week where I'm giving you a look and then an expecting <laughs> you to comprehend that. But yes, yeah, so there, there is there is some evidence that for whatever reason, men do have a better spatial sense than women. But what I couldn't find is anything to back up my assumption that this means that men are in fact more interested in maps than women. And in the middle of the point where Caroline and I were still having this debate on Twitter, I got an email from someone in berlin called sarah telling me that she she listened to the podcast because she shared my obsessive love of maps um and that barbara was wrong about maps so anyway sarah is also one of the three members of the berlinials podcast and uh, they've been kind enough to record a segment about berlin for us
2: Marissa. I'm Sarah. And we are two-thirds of the Berlinals and we're going to be talking about why Berlin is such a great city. We are indeed. Um, so why is Berlin so awesome? Because it is poor, but sexy. And <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? I didn't say it. Who did? <laughs> Klaus Vorbereit, who is the former mayor of Berlin. And I think, in a way, it's still true, and it encapsulates a lot of things about Berlin. It's a very cheap city to live in, which mm-hmm. I think is why we have such a big expat community, mm-hmm. a big start-up scene, a big artistic scene, which also means that there's just a lot of cool stuff to do. Yeah. I mean, this is a, it's also a very open city. It's got a huge gay community. It's very tolerant. It's very uh, left-wing. Uh, public transport is great. You also don't need to speak
6: German, which is ideal.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> as someone who arrived not speaking German, exactly. it was idea. Yeah.
6: yeah, it does feed into some of the bigger problems that uh, Berlin has got at having such a large international community.
2: Yeah, and this will thrill your sociology heart, Sarah. So the two big problems we're going to talk a little bit about, it's gentrification and integration.
6: Yeah, which they are thrilling topics. So gentrification in Berlin is much behind where things are currently in London, but it is in, on the increase. There's no, no way around that, is there? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think in a way it's a it's a natural thing that a lot of big cities have to deal with as they expand and develop. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a particularly acute issue in Berlin because you've noticed, I guess, in the past 10 years, in the past five years, that as we have a growing international community and it's becoming a more attractive city to live in, rent has gone up dramatically mm-hmm. as one prime example, which means that a lot of... Families and people who, you know, let's say used to be able to afford renting a flat in Kreuzberg or something are now being, uh, you know,
6: completely unable to rent. Yeah, very expensive. It out. yeah, uh, yeah. And this comes coupled with some problems with integration. For example, if you do walk around Kreuzberg now on a Monday afternoon or whatever, there's a good chance you won't hear any German, not a word. And the people in the shops won't speak German. And that's a source of some pain for some Berliners, I think,
2: yeah, in a way you know it's a bit surreal um, yeah. that you're living in Germany because if you go to any other city outside of Berlin, I think you really notice that you are living in such a bubble,
6: yeah, yeah, and it, and it is a bubble, and it's a it, it can cause problems and frustrations amongst uh, people that have been here for the longer time that this new well educated english speaking community. Has taken over the city. Uh, for example, simpler things like uh, the anti-tourist T-shirts and yeah. the anti-tourist sentiment, anti-gentrification graffiti, uh-huh. being shouted at occasionally to speak German by old people on buses.
2: Yeah, or just bus drivers or bus drivers, passive aggressively <laughs> yelling at you in German.
6: Uh, but there are some more frightening themes starting to develop. Uh, In my neck of the woods in the north of Berlin in Bedding, uh, I recently encountered RFD flyer people.
2: Yeah, which is a fringe right-wing party, I guess, similar
6: to UKIP? Yeah, very similar to UKIP, possibly more deranged.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I would say, you know, you maybe get incidents of some attacks, let's say, or growing popularity of more close-minded parties, but Mm -hmm. I think these are still very isolated incidents and berlin i still think is is a great city to live in and if you come with an open mind and also try yourself to integrate and, and learn more about german culture apart from beer drinking
6: <laughs> yeah and learn some german you just got to sorry yeah yeah
2: um if you need some help with german we have some excellent german words of the week <laughs> we do we do that on
6: our podcast it comes out about once a month we're on itunes we're on omni
2: yeah berlinials instagram twitter whatever other youth-driven social media channels.
6: We trust you can use Google. Yes. <laughs> Alright, cheers. Oh. Cheers. Not, not <laughs>
4: So we've talked a bit about the practical side of women living in cities but there's also a cultural side to this as well because, as John touched on, a lot of how we negotiate cities is to do with learned experience as well as just the objective facts of how things are laid out. So to find out a bit more about this I spoke to Lauren Elkin, the author of Flanus, a book all about women walking in cities.
7: Hi, I'm Lauren Elkin, I'm the author of the recently published Flanus. Women Walk the City in Paris, New York, Tokyo, Venice and London.
4: Yeah, so I guess, I mean, you've written this book, which is, um, has been really successful, it's being serialised on Radio 4 at the moment, which must be so exciting. (laughs) Um, Why did you decide to write about women and walking?
7: It came about because, well, it sort of had two, two initial moments of Um, sort of rising to the surface and feeling like this is something I had to write about. And the first one was when I was at university in my final year and um, was in a senior seminar called The Man in the Street. Uh, So The Man in the Crowd, The Woman in the Street. And I was like, ooh, The Woman in the Street. I had just come back from Paris from studying abroad. And this was just such a rich and suggestive idea to me. Who was this woman in the street and what was she doing there? And so I really wanted to write about the female flaneur, um, because I'd just been in Paris sort of flaneering around and, and sort of discovering the joys of just walking idly in the city. And so I, as a sort of senior project, I thought I could formalize this and, and talk about women who walked in cities. And I had a sort of list I was going to write on um, Jean Rhys and Colette and Virginia Woolf. And then as I started getting into the secondary research, I just kept coming up against all of these feminist critics, lots of them are art historians, claiming that there could be no flaneuse. that The the concept was just um, an impossibility because of the way that the flaneur himself was codified in the mid 19th century, that being a time when women just didn't have, you know, the leisure or the time or the freedom to, you know, walk in the streets the way that a man did. So it was like, because the flaneur did this thing that women couldn't do at the time when Baudelaire kind of codified the flaneur, therefore there could be no flaneuse. And that struck me as like just a, A sort of problematic argument, one that made sense in its historicized moment, but that didn't sort of make transhistoric sense. Um, So at the time, you know, in the late 90s, I didn't have the like wherewithal to speak back to those art historians. But um, when I finished my PhD a few years ago, and thought, what kind of project do I want to do now? What what feels like really kind of worthwhile and important? I thought, well, women and visibility and the right to public space and and, and just the joys of, of strolling in the city.
4: And that's something you complicate so well in this book, because it's not only women can go out and, and be in city space, even if they have to navigate things differently or get treated differently, they are out there doing it, and in fact have been for a while. But also you complicate this idea that men go out and aren't looked at. I know there's a moment right. where you go back to a Baudelaire poem and kind of go there's an interloper in these writings too right mm-hmm.
7: yeah exactly yeah that was that i think i'm sort of suspicious of binaries where we say you know men do this and women do that this and you know the ways in which people present in in public are are fraught and complicated and you know in in recent years we're of seeing this sort of a growing of awareness around the trans movement and this idea that you know maybe we shouldn't be trying to pin down people according to some like grid that we have of what gender is. Maybe it's this kind of spectrum. So I was thinking about those issues as I was writing the book and coming across, you know, a, a figure like George Sand. She's, I can't remember who is it? Like maybe Griselda Pollock or, or Patricia Ferguson, who's saying that George Sand, because she was cross-dressing couldn't be a is because she's dressed as a man. And it's like, well, I don't know. She's surely, she's opening up some other space for women to signify that's sort of in between male and female and using that, that you know, interspace as a sort of place of freedom and a place of mobility. So I was trying to, yeah, play with this idea that people think they know what they're looking at when they look at us in the street, but, you know, really we might be up to something completely different.
4: Can we talk a bit about Georges-san because it's this this brilliant chapter in the book where you kind of go back and excavate this history of her in the street and watching other people in the street. Can can you just kind of... For people who haven't read the book yet or heard mm-hmm. it on the radio so far, what what drew you to her?
7: There's this great passage in her autobiography where she talks about how, right after she moved to Paris, she had left her husband and her children behind at the family estate, Noel, and found that it was actually really difficult to walk around the city in her like fancy women's clothing, all of these crinolines and, you know, skirts and little dainty shoes and her little stupid hat. Her feet would hurt. She could get anywhere. People looked at her strange. So she had a, a redding goat made for herself, like one of those old, you know, men's coats um, with the long tails and bought a pair of boots like her, her brother had and some made some breeches for herself and put them on. And then she's like, wow, it's so much more comfortable to walk in boots (laughs) instead of in little women's shoes. It was so her, her sort of decision to walk in the city was or desire to walk in the city was augmented by the fact that she was able to sort of find these very pragmatic, you know, bits of clothing. And she writes about it. It it was such like, I don't know. She's so, she's so kind of funny. And it, it reminded me a bit of, um Virginia Woolf who in her her essay street haunting says when we step out into the street we leave behind all the things that make us ourselves and George Sand was saying in my riding coat and my man's boots um I could disappear into the crowd I was like an atom lost in the crowd and that those are those are like really familiar sort of tropes for being in the city um that that idea of being either subsumed into the crowd or or wanting to preserve your individuality within the crowd that's that kind of you know georg simmel you know hmm. kind of tension and so here were women feeling this tension just the way you know that men were so this seems like the basis of of my argument for me and that came from her autobiography
4: what about kind of i mean we have to talk about paris at some point because it's such a big part <laughs> of this book is, is your move to paris and the title comes from kind of manipulating? French words and is is based on your experiences studying abroad. Is there something about you know when you're in a place which is foreign or foreign to your own experience, you reassess how you're moving in space?
7: Yeah, because if you're sort of in a new environment, then you suddenly become extremely aware of yourself in space, and you know that can either feel like a nice challenge and very exciting, and you sort of learn your way around and learn how your body feels in this new place, the way you respond to like. The weather and the lighting and, you know, whatever. Um, Or it can go the other way and you just sort of feel like forever uncomfortable. I mean, maybe I'm just excessively sensitive to to space and place. Um, I think there's probably a, a healthier response might be to just sort of go where you're going and do what you're doing. But, you know, I think there's something really kind of inspiring and empowering that can come from sort of becoming attuned to where you are and to how it feels to be there. And yeah, I mean, for instance, when I went to Tokyo, that was a place where I just didn't I didn't feel at all comfortable. And that ended up being this wonderful kind of challenge, you know, to not sort of just disembark in this place and go, I just don't like it, you know, which is how I sounded the first like probably six months or something really kind of spoiled and entitled and like, I don't like this place. It's icky and the food is gross. But to try to use that kind of point of conflict as as a way to move beyond you know your own kind of assumptions or, or needs when you get to a new place.
4: So, if you could give a kind of call to arms, would that be it that we should all go and kind of do that slight psychogeographer thing of looking at where we are? And...
7: Yeah, I think so. I think I, sorry, my, I still have pulled <laughs> my voice I feel okay. like we should
4: explain to our listeners <laughs> <laughs>
7: that you're very bravely doing this for a cold. Um, yeah, it's I, I'm 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 finding all these new nooks and crannies in my voice. I didn't know were there. I don't know, so much more tricksy and subversive to to sort of confronting your dislike for a place and saying, okay, why do I dislike this? Where is this coming from? And how can I use this as a sort of way to key into whatever is causing the friction? That might sound really abstract and vague. I don't know. But in Tokyo, it was more a question of like, I really dislike these you know buildings maybe the answer is not to recoil into myself but to like go inside them and see what there is and go up these stairs and up these elevators and you know really kind of thoroughly exhaust them and if you still hate them you still hate them but at least you've tried
4: yeah and i think that's such a familiar thing to to anyone who travels where especially someone where you don't have have language it's so easy to kind of go i'm just mm-hmm. not gonna deal with any of this
7: yeah exactly it's true
4: it <laughs>
3: Station, Changi Airport. So now we're going to go back to our conversation with Caroline Criado-Perez. You may recall that at the point we cut it off, I just asked her whether the problem was that more men are involved in city planning than women.
5: That is a huge part of the problem. It's an incredibly male-dominated industry both in terms of engineers, construction industry, town planning, architecture and of course local government as well. So all those areas that feed into the way that a city is planned and built is massively dominated by men and the problem with that of course is that men don't have an experience of what it's like to navigate a city as a woman. So for example they are less likely to have the kind of caring responsibilities that change the way a woman the kind of journeys a woman has to make, they don't experience the the level of fear of violence that, that women are going to experience. I mean, another one that I thought was really interesting was the parks in Vienna that I alluded to briefly earlier, which was where they looked at um, how children were using the park. And they found that, I think it was up to about the age of nine, boys and girls were using it equally. But after that age, girls stopped using it. And it wasn't because girls didn't want to use the park. It's because the way that the park space was divided up meant that girls and boys had to compete. And around that age is the age that boys start to, I guess, exert their masculinity in a way that girls find intimidating. And so the girls didn't really want to compete with the boys for space, and so they just didn't even bother. And they found that once they subdivided the park up into smaller spaces, the girls came back to the park. That's something that, for example... Those boys don't realise that they're doing that and they're not deliberately trying to keep the girls out. So when they, those boys grow up to be men, they won't have the experience of feeling that they had that space taken away from them, whereas girls would. And so that's something that you might think about. I mean, there's an outdoor gym, for example, in Hampstead Heath. And the number of times that, you know, I think I'll go for a run and then I might finish off in the outdoor gym. If there's a whole bunch of men just sort of hanging out there, doing their pull-ups and whatever, and being blokey... I won't go in because I just I feel intimidated I feel unwelcome I feel like they would be like oh that's this bloody woman coming in here doing it and I don't have enough I don't back myself to be enough to do (laughs) enough um, pull-ups to get away with it and they won't realize that they're keeping me out they have no idea that they're keeping me out but they are so it's about being aware of those moments having experienced those things that makes you aware of how you might want to change the way you design things
4: I wonder if there are specific, because I know um, Sadiq Khan, the new London mayor, has appointed... Far more women on his team than, than I think people were kind of expecting him to. I think yeah. he might have a female dominated top team. You will you will know this, John. I, I should know this, but I don't. But I think he's kind of you know recruited he's more women than well. ordinarily. I wonder <laughs> if there's a list of recommendations you could send to him and kind of go. Oh, that's an idea.
5: <laughs> well, well, currently I'm trying to convince him to let me put a statue off in Parliament Square. So once I've dealt with that, once demand, you've done the
4: statue, you can then sort the transport <laughs> exactly. system. And but, I mean, be, I
5: think I mean I think that's another part of it, isn't it? It's about our built. Environment and you know what, what, what history we learn about as we walk around the city. Do we see a city dominated by old dead white men, or do we see a city dominated by people who look like us um, and who make us think that you know we can also be part of the public space? Because it's about you know it's about that. It's about who belongs in the public space. Um, And historically, of course,
4: women have not been allowed in the public space. I know. Much as I love the the Tony Benn plaque in Parliament, in the in yes. the crypt I still of course the woman plaque is in the, in the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a, a
3: what's the plaque in the cupboard? I don't know
4: this Emily direction. Welding Davison spent census night one year in hiding in a cupboard off the crypt, I think it is, and um, so she could register her address as the Houses of Parliament in the census, and Tony Blair... Tony Blair? God, no, not Tony Blair. (laughs) Tony Blair didn't. Um, (laughs) Slander, slander. (laughs) Tony Ben snuck down and and put a plaque in, so it's in one of the cupboards in Parliament.
5: It is. I've been into the cupboard. I took a selfie.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Was was there light in the okay that's an irrelevant question. (laughs) Really
5: what what was the lighting situation? Yeah. The lighting was gonna... wasn't very good. It was a very small cupboard. That Did you had use a flash? You had to... <laughs> in it. Actually, you're not allowed to take photographs. So <laughs> Photography is not allowed in the cupboard. But yeah, they, they're storing like printer cartridges in <laughs> or something. It's, it's really not very, uh, you know, it's not a very hallowed okay. space.
3: Okay. To round this off, I'm, I think there's kind of an example. Well, something I'm wondering is possibly could be an example of this kind of differential, gender differential planning, which is toilets. Yes. Which it does, it's another one of the most of the cliches that seem to be true that, like, there are always queues for women's toilets, but not for men's ones. Yes. And I wonder if there is a planning cause of that where they're dedicating equal space to the two, but they don't actually require equal space. To get kind of equal efficiency, you should be dedicating more space to the female toilets. I think
5: the the... The rule that they've developed that all buildings should now incorporate is that there should be double the number of female toilets as there are male toilets, for exactly that reason. But that's just not the way most places uh, most places do it. It's pretty bad in the UK, for example, where you know there are all these long queues and public conveniences keep closing. There's one near me which has been turned into a really cool bar, <laughs> which is nice. Um, not,
3: not that hygienic one no, would you think, no,
5: but, you know, I guess they bleached it. <laughs> I've actually not been into it. I keep meaning to go into it. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a huge problem in countries like, for example, India, where in a, a typical M- Mumbai slum, there are around six toilets per 8,000 women. Many of these are infested with rats and uh, don't have running water. And women are often raped or assaulted as they search for a toilet. And the problem beyond the obvious with that is that women are therefore not using the toilet and they're developing um, all sorts of urinary tract infections and kidney problems because there is nowhere for them to pee safely um, and it's such a basic basic thing and and it is just much easier for men to just whip it out and go wherever <laughs> they want to which I'm not suggesting is something that men want to do around London I'd rather they didn't but you know they do have that option it's just not really an option an option for women now that it's not really related to city design. But something that I've come across again and again when it comes to things like uniforms for women in in the military or women in wetsuits, for example, in Greenpeace and things like that, is that none of these things are designed to make it easy for a woman to go to the loo. So she's got to take the whole thing off, whereas they've always got like a little flap for the men. So that's just, it's nothing to do with cities. It's just
4: something that I find interesting. Although if you ever want to be a woman and get no cue for the toilets and feel very smug, you know, that you're in a city watching men queue for ages, go to your nearest football stadium. And at (laughs) (laughs) half-time... Um, there is never any queue for the women's lose.
5: That actually reminds me, I was at a conference just the other day, which was, you know, obviously about women and equality, and obviously the vast majority of people there were women. And of course, when the, you know, the break came, everyone ran to the lose, and there was this massive queue snaking around the corner, and no one was going into the men's lose. So I just sort of thought, well, I'm going to go in the men's lose, because this is really stupid. And when I came out, the person in charge of the building was waiting for me to tell me off to say that I wasn't allowed to go into the men's loo, just the logic is just astounding It's a safe but... space <laughs> oh. There were no men there
4: <laughs> So to relieve my burden as the sole representative of the female gender, although you know I'm happy to take it on if you all are um, we asked on Twitter what women would change about their cities to make them feel safer and just generally more pleasant to live in and um, we got some great responses.
3: Yeah, the thing that struck me about this, actually, was that the vast majority of responses were, in fact, from women, because I really thought this was going to backfire and we were going to get loads of men sort of complaining in some... Cause just because just I've been to the internet before, really. Um, and I was I was, I was was pleasantly surprised that relatively few stuck the roar in at this point.
4: Yeah. No, a few of them did come to argue, but they mostly tagged out City Metric and just addressed it to me, which is, um... Oh. <laughs> But we did.
3: We, <laughs> I mean, that, that 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 feels like a very telling story. It? Okay. <laughs> but we
4: did. But we did get a lot of women coming with suggestions that range from potentially controversial to things that could actually be quite minor. So Marie Laconte, who writes for BuzzFeed, has suggested a curfew for men to stop men from being outdoors after 9pm unless accompanied by a woman. Molly
3: Goodfellow from Sky News suggests more taxis driven by women or a women's only taxi service, which I thought was quite a nice idea. I
4: think that'd be fantastic. Laurie Penny makes the point, Laurie Penny, contributing editor at the New Statesman, makes the point that humane and reasonable rents, allowing his actual choice over where and with whom we live would make a big difference for her. And then Neve Navulan says better cycle infrastructure would also be nice because abuse and intimidation from drivers is a nasty bit of her life and both of those I I found quite interesting in that what we're potentially seeing is that things that benefit everyone benefit women more in that women stand to suffer more when things aren't great.
3: Yeah no I thought that was quite telling that both of those were just general points about if we design the city better it will get it will particularly improve for women someone called Naomi suggests a navigational app which recommends the safest streets to use for walking or cycling home at night someone popped up to to suggest that Naomi look at a safety pin app and harassmap.org so
4: oh fantastic this is when I love Twitter and you kind of post and somebody else already has the answer Rosie Fletcher says something quite interesting because she talks again about no advertising which is an interesting thing I think people maybe don't realise how hostile advertising feels when you're kind of going through the tube and you pass 20 pictures of women you know with their breasts out or kind of advertising cars or just generally objectifying in grotesque ways but she also says we should have more public shaming of gropers, or and, and perverts this is one of the things that men if you're listening this may be a relatively easy thing to do is that you know the more men when they feel safe to do so call out other men the easier you make women's lives
3: something that did strike me about this is that we didn't get there aren't really any funny answers like normally we do this bit and it's kind of an excuse to read out funny tweets and actually everyone's just coming up with genuinely quite well thought through policy ideas (laughs) which is which is which is brilliant and Um, telling yeah
4: uh, we also had some fantastic ones about cleaning up pavements and things like that because you know i'm i'm the oldest of four people women disproportionately in our society bear the brunt of Childcare. If you're trying to get a pushchair or a hyperactive toddler down the street, even something like dog poo on the street is going to bother you more than if you're on your own, walking at speed, able to dart around a bit. <laughs> Everything is about women, is what we're learning here.
3: Yeah, we had a few people pop up to complain about men urinating in the street, which is gross. I mean, let's not let's not beat around the bush on that one. That's just disgusting.
4: Well, more public toilets in general, and more public toilets for women. Yep.
3: Yeah, I mean actually public toilets are a great example of this kind of thing where it would be a massive benefit for everyone, but particularly for women, and you really can't you really don't have to think hard about that to see why. Yeah. Something that a few people proposed was stronger punishments for men that urinate in the street. Emma Brooke says, I keep seeing it this week and it's gross. I don't know why particularly this week, but
4: Yeah, no, it is both highly irritating, partially on a jealousy level because men can urinate in the street but also because the public urinals in Piccadilly Gardens in Manchester make my eyes water and I blame patriarchy for this. You're obsessed with these public urinals. I really am. I've got this is my number one city bugbear
3: The things you're going to get on every episode of this podcast is going to be something to do with football and urinals
4: I'm basically going to turn this podcast into a campaign platform for my campaign to remove the public urinals from Piccadilly Gardens
3: I hope you're listening Andy Burnham. (laughs) Been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Ellich and Stephanie Boland and produced by Roy Phil Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by C O R T R. You also heard We Are One by Vixento. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks, on ACAST, on iTunes, or in the Podcatcher of Your Choice. You can also find two more shows by Ericsson Colleagues, Seriously, and the New Statesman Podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on. We love you for it. Thanks for listening.
1: This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand
0: Street. Mind the gap.
1: 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동